So does your career energize you with life or does it drain you? Recent Gallup polls show that a whopping 70% of us feel disengaged in the workplace. There's just gotta be a better way. Welcome to our authentic careers where it is my job to uncover the ideas and strategies that can help you become better aligned with your career. I'm your host, Gert Sabar, and I interview people like you and me about the twists and turns in their career paths so that we can all achieve greater clarity, meaning, and fulfillment in ours. And on today's podcast, I chat with the ever eye-opening Nancy Martira, a former colleague of mine who currently works as a brand strategist at Deloitte Digital. My conversation with Nancy reminded me of a simple and fundamental truth that I think is worth elevating every once in a while to our consciousness, and that is that each and every one of us is ultimately shot into the world from the canon of our upbringing, and that whether we like it or not, we then spend our careers either conforming to or rebelling against those invisible guardrails, or or hopefully even shaking them off, those sets of beliefs, attitudes, and motivations that were imprinted upon us while we were growing up. In this interview, Nancy opens up about her rather unpredictable journey, which took her from the halls of Congress as a Senate page to Europe as a full-time nanny and back to the U.S. working for a hedge fund, a global PR agency, and now a digital consultancy. Uh, Nancy has literally been there and done that in every which possible way, and in the process has arrived at what, to me, were some really interesting perspectives about the role she believes her career should and should not play in her life. So without further ado, I give you Nancy Martira. Awesome, Nancy. So first of all, thank you for uh, for agreeing to take the time to be here. Oh, of course. All right. So let's let's um, let's dive right in. First question for you: Are you today where you thought you would be when you were younger? No. Do tell. No, not at all. I think it's a very strange thing in the way that we're now revisiting a lot of the language and the questions that we ask children, there's a lot of talk in parenting about, you know, not saying, Oh, she's so pretty or you're so smart. Um, I I think we're going to come to terms with the way that we're constantly asking children, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. It's, it's just a really dumb question. And I think it gets, I think it gets internalized where from a young age, people start feeling like I'm supposed to know the answer to this question. I'm supposed to pick a thing and then go off and be that thing. And that's definitely uh, not what happened for me and, and not really what's happened for most people that I know. Yeah. So let's, can we talk a little bit about what, what happened with you? Where, where did you think you were going to go? And where are you today in comparison to that? I think if you had asked me when I was, uh, you know, not a young child, but 16, 17 years old, I would have thought that I would be um, in the federal government. Either as somebody who held elected office, uh, a senator or a representative, or somebody working in the administration of a kind of a, a senior federal leader or, you know, or et cetera. Um, I, when I was 16 years old, I served as a Senate page, actually, in Washington, D.C. And I was one of those kids that you see if you've ever watched C-SPAN. I don't know why, why you would, but if you ever watch C-SPAN, 
and you see the, the the kids they're 16 years old they wear navy blue suits and they kind of run around the senate floor that's i was one of those awesome mm-hmm. and, and when when did you when did you know that that you were even interested in that i don't know i was very uh, oddly politically aware uh-huh. and politically active from being a very young person to, you know, writing letters to the editor of the local paper yep. <laughs> when I was probably nine or ten years old and then getting a little bit older and being in student government and going to school committee meetings and kind of fighting against policies that uh, I didn't like in, in the schools. Uh-huh. I really thought the, the system was the way to go. <laughs> That's awesome. Well- yeah, just get right in there. Dig right into the system. <laughs> And then I was I was very interested with uh, national politics and particularly women in politics, and I had that opportunity as a page, and so I thought, well, this is this is what I'll do. I'll get to see the Senate from the inside out, and I'll come back here. I lived in Washington D.C. for six months as a teenager, went to school there, lived there, and thought, well, I'll be back. Yeah. When what? Uh, so, just a side note: what were some what were some of the issues that were uh, that were pressing to you when you were younger? That you were writing letters to the editor at, at nine years of age. Oh, I was real. This is terrible. But I was really uh, my school district was having this whole debate about homogeneous versus heterogeneous grouping. Yep. So whether you group kids by similar ability or not, uh, I was very much in favor of that. <laughs> right. Uh, then there was, you know, there a new vice principal had come in and he, he had ideas and he wanted to take away our backpacks. You wouldn't be allowed to walk around with a backpack on because he thought it was a security risk. And I thought that was really dumb. Yep. Uh, so it was things like that. So uh, what, what, what was it about your childhood that you can remember that made you... So issues interested and how'd you end up as, as a page? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think I was always a very contrarian child. I'm not like the rest of my family. Uh Um, so kind of culturally I was, I was just trying to buck against everything that I could. And I bucked against the religion. I came from a Catholic family. I bucked against um, kind of what my parents' ideas about what a good girl and a good daughter was. Yeah. And I only had very limited recourse or or power in those situations. So I think I looked for other situations where I had more power and more agency. Got it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty weird, but I think... I maybe became power obsessed at a young age because I felt like my power at home was constantly being thwarted and kind of pounded down. Right. Um, <laughs> Not in an abusive or a neglectful way or anything, but just, you know, they might, I come from an Italian American family and there are very strong ideas about, you know, what you should do and what girls should do and what daughters should do. And uh, I, it felt often like I was kind of hitting a wall there. So I think I, I think I just looked externally. Uh, super interesting. What what 
do you think is um, how? Well, I guess the next question is: How did you get from being a page then to where you are today? So back to the first question: You're not where you thought you would be. No. What happened along the way? Well, I, I kind of again, I think that all of those those years of feeling like I have to have a plan, I have to know what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is the path that I'm on. I think it was really scary for me to take a wholesale leap away from that. So I started kind of falling off um, in increments. I went to college and I started studying American government. And I uh, expanded that. I did American government. I did international government. I became much more interested in the international relations side. And I talked to some people about um, applying for a fellowship in the Foreign Service. So there was a brief period of time where I thought that's what I was going to do. Yep. I was going to serve government in the capacity of going into the Foreign Service. And I was going to uh, have my last two years of undergraduate paid for. I was going to have a master's paid for. And then I was going to have a, a binding commitment to the Foreign Service for, I think, a minimum of five years. Wow. And I had the application. Uh, I had I had kind of a mentor or an older friend in college who was in this program, and so she kind of took me under her wing, and uh, we were networking, and I went to D.C., and I, I was meeting incredible people. I met the director of the Foreign Service Institute. She was the highest-ranking African-American woman in the Foreign Service at that time, and got to know people and, and kind of got the sense that, you know, all I had to do was fill out the application and sign, and this right. was it. Right. And it was going to be like, well, and, and no more decisions then, right? It lock, would lock me in, I think, for something like the next nine years. Right. And ultimately, I couldn't do it. Um, I was so afraid of that commitment and uncertain. Yep. And didn't like the idea of feeling like I was going to owe anybody anything. Yep. That I was going to have to pay back. That made me pretty uncomfortable. And uh, I just said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll figure something else out. So what, uh, so what happened next? So what happened next, there's a, lot, there's a lot of diversions and twists and turns. But as I was going through college, I was supporting myself in part by working as a nanny. And I worked as a nanny uh, in western Massachusetts where I went to school. I studied abroad and I lived for a year in Vienna, Austria, and I worked as a nanny. And so, and this was something I was, I, I kind of took this job um, spur of the moment because at my college, the only job you were eligible your first year, for, only work study job, was in the kitchen as a dishwasher. Uh-huh. And my younger brother had been a dishwasher at a seafood restaurant in Rhode Island when he was like 15 years old. And he said to me, whatever you do, don't wash dishes. It's terrible. So I said, okay, well, if I'm not going to take a work-study job, i got to figure something else out. And uh, said, well, you know, I used to babysit. I can probably pick up some babysitting or, you know, look for uh, a more regular gig. And so that's how I started working as a nanny. And then it became, it became pretty important to me being a nanny. And so through a lot of my experience... Uh, in Massachusetts and then in Europe, working as a nanny for families, a lot of them were bilingual families, uh, bicultural families, and I was oftentimes doing bilingual childcare too because I spoke a few languages. 
So then I started getting really interested, really interested in the idea that uh, for a career, I wanted to work in something where I could produce high quality, uh, multicultural, bilingual resources for children. So I thought about publishing, I thought about children's books, I thought about television, public television, Sesame Street, and that was my best guess at what I wanted to do when yeah. I graduated college. So when I when I graduated college, I started talking to you know WGBH in Boston, which was the local uh, public television affiliate in Boston, and they produced shows like Arthur uh, and some of those shows, and started talking to people at Sesame Street in New York, and ultimately. I got a job interview at Sesame Street, and yeah. that's that's why I moved to New York. I had I had two job interviews at Sesame Street. It was my yep. perfect dream job. It was working in the international uh, division at Sesame Street, and I thought, this is it. This is my perfect job, and here I go. Away I go. Yep. So I moved to New York City, and uh, I moved into, into New York on a Saturday, and on Monday morning... Uh, they called me and told me I didn't get the job. Oh wow! Yeah. So you moved. You moved pre-job. I moved pre-job. See, I got. I had gotten to the job interview. I didn't know you were actually supposed to wait for the job offer. <laughs> right. I love it. Because <laughs> again, I still the things had, we learn. Yeah, I had a lot of arrogance. I had a lot of, uh, you know, I think I can. I think I can. Here we go. This is it. I love it. And it didn't work out. Yep. So then I was I was really stuck. I was in New York. I had no job. And I had basically used all of my savings to move to New York. So I had to make a go of it there. And uh, couldn't get a job. Couldn't get any job in New York. I was really interested in publishing. Yep. And I interviewed with all the big publishers constantly. All of the small publishers. Every kind of, you know, textbook publishing, genre publishing. I couldn't get a job. Yep. So I went back to being a nanny. By the way, what was the, uh, to digress for a second, what was the ish, what was the kind of the consistent feedback you were getting as you were interviewing at that time? Uh, no feedback. No feedback. I don't think I knew what I was doing. Um, yep. it, was, it was pretty rare that I was even getting called in for interviews. Yep. I was sending out way more applications and filling out, you know, applying for jobs than I was actually getting interviews. And then I was getting, you know, out of the interviews I was getting, I was getting a smaller subset of second interviews, and I was getting no offers. And I was even going around town, and I was filling out applications to work at Haagen-Dazs scooping ice cream or Starbucks. Yep. Uh, and I couldn't get hired in one of those jobs, because I think that they knew the instant I get another job, I was going to leave. So I felt really... <laughs> impotent and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get a job. I had just graduated with this great degree. I knew I was a smart person and I couldn't get a job scooping ice cream. Yep. And what degree did you have? Uh, I had a BA in international government from Smith College. Uh, so you ra go rather useless. <laughs> at rather least useless. at that moment in time at least. Well, I called, uh, so one of the things that had really sold me on Smith, too, was the sisterhood and this network, and we're all going to help each other out, and they had a career development office, and so I was hitting that up as well. I was trying to reach out to people uh, who, who were working in places that were really interesting to me, and I called a woman who was, you know, listed in the alumni network and had made her information available 
who worked at WGBH in Boston. And I called her, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm putting the kids to bed right now. Can I call you back? I said, sure. So she called me back half an hour later, and I launched into my spiel about, you know, how I was so passionate about making great quality um, bilingual programming for children and all of this. And she was, she was so, I realized something was going wrong in the phone conversation. And she said to me, I'm so sorry. I thought you were calling about the nanny position. (laughs) And she, I I don't want to say she hung up on me, but she got me off the phone probably within 10 seconds. Yep. So all of that uh, sisterhood and networking was not paying off for me at that time either. (laughs) Got it. So you then go to nanny, being a nanny. So I, I started being, I went back to being a nanny. nanny yep. I was living in Brooklyn and working as a nanny. And I was making basically just enough to cover my rent. And I was still trying to get a job in, in publishing and still applying for those jobs and going nowhere. And after probably about nine months or 10 months, I was, you know, I was, I was racking up credit card debt to live in New York. And I said, okay, I have to now take any job. Yep. I have to take any job that will pay me enough to live on. Uh, toot sweet. Right. So, like, and I, you know, I was working as a nanny and I picked up other babysitting jobs and, you know, that was my primary source of income. And I had ideas. Um, I was trying to write. I was trying to maybe sell some writing to magazines, and I had different little ideas. But uh, it, it became apparent it was time to get a job, a yep. job. Uh huh. So I started registering with staffing agencies and putting my resume out there and saying like oh, I'm looking for temp work, temp to perm, anything that's out there. And I got a call from a staffing agency that said to me, "Oh, it says on your resume you speak German." are you fluent in German? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'm fluent in German. (laughs) And they said, Oh, well we have a job opening. We've been trying to find somebody who's bilingual in English and German. Uh, We have a, a German real estate bank in New York and we need somebody there who can be kind of the executive assistant slash office manager but also somebody who speaks German because you have to be able to liaise with the home office back in Germany and do some translation and, and all of that. And that's the job I ended up getting. Wow. That's the job that I took. I applied for and I got that job and I, uh, I quit my nanny job. And that was my, that was my first big job. And I wasn't fluent in German. <laughs> right. I was conversational in German. Uh, my boss was another American guy. He didn't speak any German, but he kind of knew enough to know that I had really over-exaggerated my skills. Yep. And uh, he he basically said to me after a week or two, like, look, hiring and firing somebody is, is, is a real pain. I don't want to have to fire you. It's just going to be more work for me. Right. And just basically put it out there, like, just get better. Right. Just, just be better. Be better. Get better. I love it. Uh, and I said, okay, I can do that. And I also then realized, okay, I'm not fluent in German. It's taken me hours to translate documents. Right. <laughs> simple simple two-page documents. And they're probably not even very good. 
I'm pretty confident I'm, a, I'm at least getting the gist of things. While I work on this, I am going to, it was a small office. I'm going to learn how everybody likes their coffee. And I'm going to make everybody coffee every morning and bring them coffee to their desk just the way they like it. Amazing. That's what I did. Survival instinct. <laughs> Where's the survival instinct? Um, what what do you make of that moment in time when you transitioned from, you know, sort of uh, maybe we'll call it idealist to uh, uh, practical? Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really remember when the tipping point came. I remember sitting down and kind of figuring out that, you know, I was getting paid under the table in cash, basically enough to cover my rent. Yep. And that anything extra that I wanted to do, like eat or take the subway (laughs) or go see a movie or, you know, buy some new clothes was just putting me further and further in debt. Yep. And uh, it, it was definitely, I need to either, I'm going to need to go home. I'm going to need to pack up, move back to Rhode Island, move in with my dad, and go back to my job at the Greenwood Credit Union. Unless I can figure something out. Yep. And uh, that was not acceptable to me. As an, as an, as an outcome, yep. <laughs> so it was time to reevaluate my standards. Let go of who I thought I was, let go of what I what it was I thought I was supposed to be doing, and that's that was my first career type job. It was in a completely unrelated industry. It was nothing I ever thought I would be doing. Yeah, but I just needed I just needed to get a foot in the door because I knew that I was a smart person and a hard worker, but nobody else knew that, and nobody gave a shit because. <laughs> right. You know, you once you've been in the system and you're doing hiring yourself, you don't have time. And it's such a big, especially at a big corporate job, once you hire somebody, it's then so difficult to then get rid of that person or it's just such a headache. And that's exactly what happened to me at the German bank. Yep. It's it's hard to take a chance on somebody. Yeah, it and is. And then when, when I did, when I got into the German bank, and it beca- it was very obvious to them that I was smart and that I could be doing more than I was doing. And they were, you know, not that long after I started, they started talking to me about, you know, what would you like to do here? Would you like to, would you like to get an MBA? Would you like to become a loan officer? Yeah. We have some training programs for you, things that we could help you with. So you mentioned you also worked at a credit union when you were younger. (laughs) I did, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, had, I, I started working when I was 16 years old, and I had a bunch of different jobs. And um, one of my jobs was as a, a, a bank teller at a credit union in the summer. Yep. So I did that for two summers. I was a bank teller, and I, I liked it. I liked it a lot uh, for a summer job while I was in college. And then when I graduated, I, you know, I didn't have a job, and I went back home to Rhode Island and as I was waiting for the next thing to come and trying to get all those interviews, um, I wasn't married to New York. I was looking in Boston. I was looking in New York. I was looking in Washington, D.C. Um, but I I couldn't 
just sit around either. I had to work. So I went back to the credit union where I had been a bank teller. And they said to me, they said, well, we've never had a bank teller that graduated college. Right. So now you're a loan officer. <laughs> right. So I became a loan officer. And I had no <laughs> idea what I was doing. But they would say to me, well, it's very easy. And if somebody comes, they apply for a loan, they fill out this form. You take the answers that they wrote on their form. You input it into the software. <laughs> it's going to spit out a number. Uh, and then it goes to credit committee and we give it a, we approve it or we don't approve it. And then you got to close the loan. So we did that. <laughs> That's amazing. Nancy, I vaguely remember a Facebook post uh, you had a while back about, about working at the credit union and what you, uh, just as an aside, but what you learned about people. Oh, I learned so much about people. I learned how people live with their money uh-huh. um, from both being a teller and from being a loan officer. Um, people would come up to my window uh, and they didn't speak English and they would hand me a blank check. They uh-huh. wanted to pay their mortgage and they needed me to fill out the check, write the check for them. Amazing. There were people coming in that clearly had drug addictions, drug problems, and were coming in and cleaning out accounts. Um, there were people that were taking advantage of relatives because they had they were co-signers on the account, and technically we couldn't deny them access to the funds. Yep. People would come in and apply for a loan when I was a loan officer, apply for a loan for, I'd say, oh, what do you need this money for? And they would sell me furniture or you know, vacation or something. And then when they would apply for a loan, we'd pull a credit check on them. I'd see their credit history. And if they had an account at the credit union, I could see every place they'd use their ATM card too. And uh-huh. I would see they were going to the casinos <laughs> in, in Connecticut, in nearby Connecticut. And they were probably trying to get a loan to pay off uh, casino debt. Yep. So I, I learned a lot in that job. <laughs> Pretty awesome view on people. From that perspective. It was was fascinating, too, because people would, you know, and before I worked at the credit union, I had worked in coffee bars. And so I had I had worked behind a counter and people when you're behind a counter, people automatically assume you're dumb. Uh huh. And nothing made me crazy. Nothing to this day makes me crazier than when people talk down to me or treat me like I'm dumb. And so people would think I was dumb or they would uh, think that they were a big shot because they had money in the bank. And I can see their account, and I might see that somebody has, you know, $100,000 in their account, you know, and they think they're rich. And uh, I knew that in the overall scheme of things, that that probably wasn't very rich. It certainly wasn't, you weren't rich enough to, to treat me like dirt. <laughs> right. Um, no, I appreciate that. I'm uh, doubting whether there's anyone rich enough to treat anyone like dirt. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so c- credit union and then you end up in this German bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is there any, uh, is there a thread there at all? I mean, what uh, is that just random coincidence? Is there, is there a thread with the German side? I, I think that was a coincidence. Yep. I think the fact that I learned German really helped me and it was, it was very strange um, the re- whole reason I learned German in the first place, I was able to start learning German in high school. Uh, I had already learned French, and I was continuing with French. I was very good at languages. I wanted to pick up a new language. And my high school my high school at one time offered a wide variety of languages. They offered Spanish and French and Italian and Russian and Latin. And every year, everything got cut, except for <laughs> Spanish and French. Yep. 
And for whatever reason, I wasn't interested in Spanish. But they had they had a German class. They kind of had a one-track little German class because my, my school was very close to the University of Rhode Island. Many of the kids I went to school with went on to go to the University of Rhode Island where they had a really strong engineering program. And they would do, if you went there on the engineering program, they had a lot of exchanges, uh, student and, and work exchange with the firms in Germany. So they started, they taught German in my high school so that if you were on that engineering track at URI, you kind of had to jump up on the, on the language. So it was only the fact that this engineering program was so strong that that was even an option to me. But I learned in, in high school and then in college, and then of course I studied abroad and that was huge. But that was the whole reason. I mean, otherwise I would have just been a temp and I would have... I would have gone to wherever. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Whomever had hired me. What happens after the bank? The German bank? Yep. I, so they, they said to me, they said, you know, we, you know, we, we like working with you. We think you're very talented. Um, we'll train you. Uh, we have tuition assistance if you want to get an MBA, if you want to start really pursuing a career in real estate finance. And I knew that was a good deal. I knew somebody, you know, offering to pay for my MBA was a really good deal. Yep. But when I sat down and thought about it, I did not want an MBA and I didn't want to work in real estate investment finance. Right. Right. That. 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 That's that small one, detail. That one pesky detail. <laughs> right. So I said to the bank, I said, all right, I would. I like working with you guys. I love the company. I will stay here. Um, I would like you to send me to Germany for a year or two years. Uh, guys were constantly coming over from Germany, and they were either staying for a month or a year or two years. They're kind of doing these rotations. Yep. I said, I want you to send me to Germany. That's what I want to do. That was that had a lot of value for me, the opportunity to live and work abroad. Because yep. I had lived in Austria, and I loved it, and, and that's what I wanted to do. And my boss was kind of like, well, you know, I don't really want to send you away for a year, but, you know, I, I, I like having you around. I'd like to keep you in the firm. We're going to pursue this. You'll probably, we'll send you over there. We're probably going to have to get you trained in something, credit evaluation or something to kind of make this work. And I said, that's fine. I'll, I'll go over there. I'll learn whatever you want to teach me. And... Uh, he said, okay. So he, he was on board with it, and he was trying to make it work for me. And he went to his boss, who was a German guy, and he said, no. Uh-huh. No. That is not how this works. We don't take secretaries and train them for something else. Yep. And that, to me, was a real interesting look at what it means to be an American versus to, to be growing up in another culture in the world where upward mobility is so so much a part of the American dream and our system. And we want to believe that it's a meritocracy and you work hard and you can rise up. And that, this, you know, that was just not playing with this old school German guy. <laughs> right. He was like, you want to send your secretary, you want to send your secretary to me? I, I got a line of secretaries here. <laughs> right. You want to train your secretary to be underwriting million dollar real estate deals? <laughs> no. Yep. And so, you know, my, my boss apologized to me and he felt badly and, but I, I felt humiliated quite honestly. Um, so I left because in a way I felt that I was losing face. 
Um, but hmm. also because I said, well, there's no place for me to go here. Right. You know? So then I, you know, I, I was feeling the itch to get out of there. I worked with another staffing company. They very quickly got me a job at, uh, in a new financial company. I then went to go work at a hedge fund, believe it or not. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I worked at a uh, hedge fund that was largely invested in subprime assets in uh, 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. Right, right in the heart of it. Yep. I went there. And, and did some good for the world. <laughs> I, did, I did some good. It's all about the kids. I really wanted to get back to giving to the children. <laughs> right. So I went to go work at this uh, this hedge fund where I was treated like garbage, and most everybody treated everybody else like garbage. Yep. And uh, we were doing lucrative but uh, work that, as the more transparency and clarity I had, that it, it didn't feel particularly great. <laughs> right. But my problem there too was also was you know ultimately the the way that I was treated and I didn't last in that job very long because there was a there was a culture of shit there that I was uh, not going along with. Yep. My old contrarian self reared its head. Reared its head, and Love it. I I was I was very well liked by a lot of the guys, a lot of the young guys, the traders, but the leadership of the fund. Uh, did not care for my particular brand of what I was selling. <laughs> Got it. So I decided, uh, this isn't going to last very long. I might as well, you know, collect my bonus and, and see what's next, which is, which is what I did. And fortunately it got me right out of that hedge fund right before that whole sector really kind of imploded in New York. And it was just dumb luck and, and, you know, timing on my part that spared me from that. Right. So, so what happens next? So then I decided, okay, when I take my next job, it has to be someplace where I feel like my skills are going to be valued. My skills were not valued at the hedge fund. I was, uh, kind of an executive assistant, an admin, and also a marketing assistant. I worked yep. on sales assets and, you know, investor letters. Yep. And nobody respected that. You know, if you weren't, if you weren't a trader or if you weren't, you know, running your pivot tables and your models and all of that, uh, nobody cared about the girl who made the PowerPoint slides. <laughs> right. I said, okay, I'm going to go someplace where my skills are going to be valued. And so I thought I need to go to a more creative area. I need to get out of finance. And I just was looking for jobs online, just blinds looking for jobs. Um, and that's when I saw a job opportunity at Ketchum. And I didn't even really have a clear understanding of what public relations was. But I knew that Ketchum was a big global PR firm. And I felt, you know, pretty, pretty good about my communication skills. Uh, the actual job I applied for had an, a bit of an international focus. And so I felt that my experience would, would serve me well there. Yep. And that's how I got Medora Ketchum. And, and I took a pay cut to go to Ketchum. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, took a pay cut, but all for getting out of a hedge fund. All for getting out of a hedge fund. Yes. Yep. Nancy, there's um, as I'm listening to you, uh, one thing that I'm noticing is that there is a sort of a a faith in just what happens next. Yeah. Is that true? Am I reading that right? I think there is. I think there is an, um, yeah, an acknowledgement of privilege that I could swing big and I could take risks yep. and I would be okay. Because even if that next job didn't come, uh, I didn't, I didn't have financial resources and I don't come from a family that could just throw money at me, but I did always know I could always go home. Yep. And I could always start again. Right. So you had that safety net in the back of your mind. I definitely had an, uh, an emotional safety net. And also yep. I'm, you know, somebody who is pretty well connected and has a lot of friends. And, um, I always go out of my way to help people when they are searching for jobs. Yep. And so I had, you know, I felt like I had some good karma stored up in that way. Um, but I felt, I felt pretty good about taking risks. I also tend to get very bored. Yep. And I, I need to take risks for my own sanity. Because when I get bored or when I start to feel stuck, um, it's not good for me. That makes a lot of sense. What On, on, on a scale of, um, of 0 to 10, let's say, where, where 0 is, is a total non-issue and 10 is, uh, is a big, dark, gloomy shadow... How, how large a shadow would you say financial considerations have had over your career path to date? I mean, we know that we know there was one particular moment in time when it was very obvious. Mm -hmm. But aside from that moment in time, what how, how would you rate that? Um, I would say that that money is important to me yep. and making good money is important to me. And I really like to go to a job where I feel like I can do good work and then I like to leave my job yep. and go home and do the things that are personally meaningful to me. I have never really sought to find a job where I could be in the very nature of my nine to five work, yep. making a difference or pursuing a passion. Kind of, and, and maybe that's because once I started my path in, on finance, that all just kind of felt like an impossibility. R relatedly, do you think about the concept of purpose or mission as it relates to your job ever at all? I do. I usually, um, working in, in communications and working particularly in what I work in now, which is digital strategy and, and digital communications, it's very noteworthy when I feel like I'm able to do something that's really truly meaningful in the world yep. in my job. Mm -hmm. And then it's also very noteworthy when I feel like I'm doing something that doesn't feel good. Most of the time, I am doing work that overall I feel rather morally ambivalent about. Yes. Most of what I am doing is culture to promote sales or retails or selling of services for products that may be fantastic or that maybe you actually really don't need. 
Right. But I, I'm pretty ambivalent about that. I'm not the kind of person who worries, who's worries too much about, um, you know, the pollution of advertising or yeah. promoting a more consumer oriented society. Yep. It's more important to me that, um, I'm able to support myself and be financially independent from my partner and from my family. And that I also am able to earn enough that I'm able to pursue things that I'm passionate about and then also give my time and money to organizations that are meaningful to me outside of work. Right. So you're looking at, um, is it fair to say that you're looking at your income as a as the mechanism by which you're doing that so it doesn't have to be the the day-to-day of your job but you're right. using your income as your as your medium right right it's more important for me to have kind of goals for myself whether it's monthly or annual contributions to nonprofit organizations or charitable organizations that are important to me or even being in a job where i have the flexibility to take time off if i want to do some volunteering um, on an, on a regular basis or organize service projects within my, uh, my company, that is more important to me to have the freedom and the resources and the opportunity to do that than to be, uh, invested in work that is serving those same end goals. Yep. So walk us through, you're now at Deloitte. Yes. I'm at Deloitte Digital. I finally left New York after almost 10 years in New York and I'm in Seattle now. Yep. And the transition from Ketchum to Deloitte, can you just tell us what what's uh, what was the impetus and what's the you know, what are you what's in this job now that's different? Yeah. Well I was really driven to make a lifestyle change. Um, that is what led me to, to feel like I it was time for me to leave New York as well as time for me to leave Ketchum. Um, I, there was a number of things I wanted to change in my life, a number of circumstances that had changed. Uh, the overriding one being that I was in a long-distance relationship with a guy who lived in Spokane, and yep. I was in New York. And uh, I was not going to go live in Spokane. <laughs> right. Uh, that was that was number one. But he was very open to moving to New York, and I just said to him. I think it's time for me to go. I think that, you know, we were, we were young in our relationship, um, but in our mid-30s, so not young in necessarily in other ways. But I said, if you move out here to New York to be with me, the way the circumstances of my work-life balance now and my general attitude and happiness, I'm not going to be a good partner to you, and this relationship is not going to work. Yep. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to be working all the time, commuting a lot, coming home to an apartment that I hate. <laughs> and that's not going to set us up for success as a couple. Yep. So if we're really going to do this, we're going to make a big change. And that's what, that's the direction that we decided to go on. And, and then once we opened that up, really we had you know, we could move anywhere. Once we decided I wasn't moving to Spokane, he wasn't moving to New York, we could go anywhere. Right. We did have a list of things that were important to us in a, a new place that we were going. And Seattle came to the top of the list. 
Um, for me, it was really important to me. I wanted to be on the coast. I still wanted to be in a city. I liked the water. I wanted to be surrounded by water. Um, I wanted to be someplace that still had really good culture, a great food scene and good arts and, you know, good literature. I could still go out and do the things that I liked to do in New York. Yep. Um, but most importantly as well, too, was I wanted to move to a place that had really good job opportunity for me. And I didn't want to move someplace where I might have a job there, but if I ever decided to leave that job or lose that job, I'd have a hard time finding a new one. And Seattle definitely feels like, especially in this particular moment and for the work that I do, you know, if I, if I ever needed to leave this job or, you know, I, I was laid off from this job, it, it feels like right now I could find a new job in, you know, about 10 minutes. Yep. Um, another thing that's striking me, Nancy, as I'm listening to you is you are supremely practical, you strike me as supremely practical. Really? Yeah. I mean, your your decisions along the way, uh, everything from how um, uh, your transitions, as well as your how, even how you you're talking about your relationship, it seems really practical. But in a really, um, and I say that in a very sort of positive way. Well, I think you know that what goes along with that is the fact that I was. Um, greatly aided in that by therapy that I saw uh -huh. a therapist for years in New York as most people in New York do and it was really only through that work that I did with my therapist that I got to a lot of this self-awareness that I could not only make better decisions moving forward but be able to look at things in my past and try to put some deeper understanding around them yeah that's super interesting. Which is another, it's interesting too, because I moved, so here I am in Seattle, and there's uh, there's some degree of culture shock here. And I mentioned, <laughs> you know, seeing a therapist at one point, and somebody at work said to me, oh, don't say that. We don't talk about that here. Uh -huh. This isn't New York. <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> you don't all talk about how you're in therapy all the time? That's so weird. I uh, love it. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, are, are there any career decisions you made along the way that looking back today, you would choose to undo or, or somehow redo? No, I have, you know, when I look back at, you know, things I did when I was younger and things I said, and I, you know, there's, there's things that I say, God, oh, I wish I hadn't played it like that. <laughs> Uh, but I, I wouldn't say that I have any regrets because I am in a place right now where I am, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm happy with my job. Um, I'm happy with uh, Seattle. I'm happy with my partner. And I'm also happy with um, the opportunities that I have been afforded through all of this experience that I've racked up. That is fucking amazing. It's not bad, right? No, I mean, you don't, you don't, <laughs> that's not something you hear from people all the time. Yeah, and moving to Seattle was really, you know, I I had been in New York for 10 years, 10 and a half years, and I, I really didn't think I would leave. And it all happened very quickly. And it's I talk about how I, I really hadn't even done that much research about Seattle. Like, I knew it had those things I wanted. It had jobs. It was booming. You know, it had the water, and it was dog-friendly. But that's kind of all I knew about Seattle. And when I started my new job about two or three days in, 
this email went out to the whole office and said, okay, we're going to have our earthquake drill. Uh-huh. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, maybe should have done a little more research about this. But I mean, I didn't, there were so many things I didn't know. And so the fact that I walk around every day and, and every day I get up, you know, I get dressed, I get on the bus. I have a very short 20 minute bus commute to uh, downtown Pioneer Square, Seattle, I walk the streets. Uh, it's not very crowded. I love where I'm working, and I'm genuinely excited to go into my office. Yeah. Largely because I, I I really enjoy a lot of the people that I work with, and usually there's like one corner that I round this corner on my work from um, my walk from the bus stop to the office, and it's always when I'm rounding this corner that it hits me, and I think, God, I am I am really lucky. Like this really worked out well, and this worked out better than it really had any right to. That's amazing. Yeah, so it, it's like a little ten-second burst of gratitude every day when I'm when I'm walking into work. I'm going to an office. I enjoy working at. I like this job. I like these people. I love the city. I don't know how I got so lucky. I love it. Um, really amazing. So, two uh, two more quick questions for you, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, knowing what you know today, how, how, and particularly on that ending, <laughs> um, how, how would you advise your younger self? Yeah, I would say one of the hardest things that, that, you know, I, I've, I've done in life and related to career, but also related to personal aspects as well is letting go of the person I thought I was Yep, and understanding that, that was an issue that was going to, I, I was going to be much more obsessed with it. I always thought other people would be noticing and judging and saying, oh, look at her, huh? Look at her now. She right. thought she was this, but she's that. That never happens. Right. And letting go of, of a lot of things where I felt like, for a long time, I felt like, well, I have to, I have to work in government. This is who I am. I have to live in Washington, D.C., um, I have to take this fellowship. It was really hard to walk away from all of those things. Yep. And then even, you know, taking a job when I went to Ketchum for the first time, taking a pay cut, that was a hard decision to make too. Yep. I wish that I knew it was okay to admit that I had made a mistake or made a false step, even if it was kind of by by default Yep. in, in making some of those moves. And it was... It should have been much less important to me where I was working than the skills I had the opportunity to learn and the manager that I would have the opportunity to work with. You know, I'm at the point in my career now when I can look and I can say, you know, I would follow some a great manager to a new job, even if it was a company I'd never heard of, or I maybe wasn't as great piece in, of advice. Yeah, invested in that company, or was something a, a sector or an industry that didn't interest me, or I never thought I would be. There are certain people in my career that if they if they called me on the phone, they said, "All right, uh, I'm going to go start something tomorrow, <laughs> and here's where I'm going." I, I would go. Yeah. Rather than looking for the next big name or the next blue chip or the next you know Fortune 100 and saying, "All right, I've got to get." I've got to get here. I've got to get this title. I've got to get this role. Really, really good pieces of advice. Um, relatedly, related to this idea of letting go of who you are, if you're looking back 
is there a, is there a, is there though a consistent thread in who you are that while you're letting go of mm-hmm. some parts has always been there with you I think that I am it's interesting because we talked about um, the importance of having a purpose driven career yep and I've mentioned that it's not necessarily as important for me to feel connected in my day-to-day work with what I'm doing, but I do believe that I'm a person with deep convictions, and I let those drive me. And I'm also a person with a lot of curiosity, a lot of intellectual curiosity, curiosity about people, curiosity about different places in the world, and curious about new skills. Yep. I mean, even when I was working in the hedge fund, I would go to the guys, I would go to the young guys, the traders who were kind of more on my level or more my age and ask them, what are you doing? What do you do all day? Right. <laughs> what are these numbers? What does this mean? Even though I had no desire in, in making that my career or making that my life or transitioning to that kind of a role, um, taking the opportunity to learn wherever you can. Uh, I love it. Is there, if I was to ask you, who uh, who are you at your core? Uh, if you were to say authentically at my core, I am a person who needs to X. What would that What would that be? You know, one of the things that I do at Deloitte is I talk to and I educate people about personal branding. Yeah on both an executive level, helping them understand and cultivate their executive brands online, and then also at kind of a more junior level, just helping people at all stages in their career think through think through who they are, what their personal brand is, whether they are actively cultivating it or not. Yeah. And so through doing that work, I have had the opportunity to, to ask that question of myself. You know, what do I want my brand to be? How do I want to be known? And I want to be known as a person who has empathy for others and who acts on things that are important to her. That is a good bit of clarity. Right? It's not bad. It's not bad be, at all. I don't want to be a, a slacktivist. I don't want to just complain about things on Facebook. Um, I want to use my words and use my money and my resources and my time to further causes that are important to me. And in my particular instance, that is all happening outside of my work life. Yep. But just because it's not part of my day-to-day, it doesn't make it any less important to me. That's right. Nancy Martira, thank you. Girl, I love talking to you. Yeah, that was an amazing interview. Great questions. Really, really good. And I'm so, um, so thrilled and so honored that you were willing to share this because I think it's, um, it's amazing. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Our Authentic Careers with me, your host, Gert Sabar. If you like what you just heard, I hope you'll let your family, friends, and colleagues know all about this little podcast. And since it's early days here at the OAC, your rating of the show on iTunes would also be hugely appreciated. If you think you or someone you know would be a good guest, please, 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 please don't hesitate to reach out at ourauthenticcareers.com.